This agreement exchanges membership rights for China in the WTO. The question of whether there is such a diplomatic solution rests ultimately with Saddam Hussein. He has the choice. He can bring himself back into compliance with the agreements he entered into. I will begin my service as Secretary of State with the wind at my back. America is strong, our principles are ascendant, and our leadership both respected and welcome in most corners of the world. I have accepted responsibility for what I did wrong in my personal life, and I have invited members of Congress to work with us to find a reasonable, bipartisan, and proportionate response. That approach was rejected today by Republicans in the House. Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s, episode two. Em, how are you going today? I'm I'm pretty well today, thank you. I've got I've got a baby in my lap who is so far quite chill, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. Okay. Well, I'm I'm in, sitting in a very sunny room today, and I think I'm getting some minor interrup- interruptions from birdsong, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's quite nice. That sounds quite lovely. Okay. Cool. So let's get into this before we have any technical stuff ups. So we ended last week's episode by talking about some of the some of the ways in which the historian Eric Hobsbawm thought that the 1990s or the long 1990s as we're calling them might unfold or what some of the key issues would be in that decade. Today we're going to start three a three-part episode about the USA, which I think is where we can see a lot of these trends emerging and also for better or worse the USA was the dominant, the dominant nation in the 1990s, as it had been, you know, one of the dominant nations in the four, in the four decades previous during the era of the Cold War. So, what we want to talk about is that period of American dominance of in, of international politics. But we're going to start a little bit later than the 1990s in 2016. So, Emma, tell me, why does 2016 matter so much when we're thinking about the 1990s? Well, I think for fairly obvious reasons, the fact that Hillary Rodham Clinton was the nominee for president for the Democrats meant that the, I guess there was a real focus on the 1990s and Hillary Clinton's role in her husband Bill's administration specifically. But for me, I think, and, and for a lot of people, what that election campaign did was kind of relitigate the 1990s from both sides of politics. So partly it was about the Clintons I guess, trying to defend and protect their legacy in the 1990s when they dominated politics for basically for the decades, for the decade. But on the other side, it was also about Trump and Republicans, I think, condemning that legacy and the 1990s and a kind of era of unfettered globalisation and free trade and the way that that had essentially laid the groundwork for the decimation of the American economy. So it was kind of fighting, I think, over the 1990s and and prompting a lot of us to kind of rethink how we felt about that time. Okay, so you kind of raised, I think, three issues there. And the first is the Clintons. The second is the right and the third is really about America, American capitalism and what that meant in the 1990s and what it means today. So that's, I think, how we're going to split up this episode of Barely Getting By. Um, and we're going to kick this one off by talking about the Clintons. So, Emma, tell me, for you know, I, I think we all like to think that we're experts in the Clintons and the American presidency, but tell me a bit about Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham Clinton. 
Okay, I, I will happily do that. So, so Bill Clinton is elected president of the United States in 1992. He is a graduate of Yale Law School. Ding, ding, there's, a, there's an Ivy League, another Ivy Leaguer from the swamp. He actually met and married Hillary Rodham while, while they were both at Yale Law School. Clinton was a, um, an anti-war protester and had, in fact, dodged the draft for the Vietnam War. But he positioned himself not as a, a kind of a radical anti-war guy, but as a centrist Democrat when he was campaigning to for the president, the nomination for presidency. I mean, a centrist, like that's a word we hear a lot these days. Did Bill Clinton identify himself as a centrist? What? How did he describe his politics? To be honest, I'm not sure if he actually used the word centrist. Um, what he did was position himself as a, a new Democrat. So by the time Clinton kind of rises to prominence, the Democrats have been out of power for decades and not just out of power, you know, so far from power that it seems kind of impossible that they're going to claw their way back. And so he positions himself as a as a kind of a new guy. So he's he's different from previous Democrats in that he is tacking to the centre and particularly he's talking tough on things like crime and welfare, which is traditionally kind of the, the remit of the Republican Party and it's, it's perceived weakness on this issue in particular, on crime and welfare, that's kind of plagued the Democrats, I think, for, for decades. So, so this is the time, I think, and we'll come, we'll come back to this, I think, to, certainly in the next episode when you talk about Tony Blair, when parties of the left kind of decide that the way to beat the right, the way to claw their way back to the power, is to kind of be harder and better on issues that the right have traditionally dominated, which, you know, in some ways, I think to put it crudely, kind of means being being more, ra- more racist and more heartless. Okay. So what happens in that election in 1992? Okay. So so what happens is, as, as we've mentioned earlier, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., is, is president. He's ushering America out of the Cold War and he is campaigning for a second term and, and he's kind of expected to win easily as most, kind of sec- as most presidents do. Most incumbents have that kind of advantage. But what that does, because Bush is expected to win, is to allow space for the Democrats to nominate a kind of relative unknown who is, of course, Bill Clinton at the time, the governor of Arkansas. And Clinton goes on to defeat Bush easily. Uh, he, he basically smashes him in the Electoral College. He gets 372 to 168 votes. So it's a so it's pretty, pretty clear victory. And uh, what that means is the United States has its first real post-Cold War president. He's the first president not to serve in any war of any kind, Um Really? He's kind of yeah yeah so he's I think the first president to to not have served particularly in the second world war so we're we're talking real generational shift okay so he won that election really decisively was that because he attacked so hard right i mean when i think of bill clinton i always think of that what's it they said they said it's the economy stupid that's right. That that is. I think. I think is one of his advisors coined that term, and and I think we'll go go back to that in more detail. But but he he wins. I think not because he's tacking to the right, but because that message of of being a new Democrat um, resonates really well. It's also because of um, economic downturn in the U.S., which which goes against. Uh, which works in Clinton's favour. Baby Viv's just adding to the conversation here. <laughs> opinions on Bill Clinton. That's right. Um, so he's he's kind of you know the fresh face of a new decade, uh, and and you know on the other side, Bush is boring. Like he he's he's uninteresting and, and uninspiring, and Clinton is young and fresh and cool. As as hard as that is to imagine at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and of course. 
he selects as his as vice president Al Gore. Tell me about Al Gore because I know that he certainly played has played a big role, especially in the climate politics of the 1990s and the 2000s. Yeah, that's right. We're still yet to do my my historical fan fiction episode where Al Gore wins the 2000 election. We'll get to it one day. Um, But basically Clinton chooses Gore because he is totally safe. He is kind of boring and has there's no background dirt on him. He's completely clean slate. So he's kind of the safe choice, I think. Okay, so... Bill Clinton, he is inaugurated beginning of 93. That's when these things take place, right? That's right, January okay. 1993. Oh, uh, look, it's, um, you always keep me on my toes when it comes to American history. Um, <laughs> so what does he do when he's when he's in power? So, look, I, I mean, he does, he does an awful lot of things, and, and I'll dedicate a whole episode, I think, to his foreign policy and particularly military interventions and non-interventions across the world um, and also to his global economic policy. But... He does a couple of really important things at home that I wanted to highlight, the first of which kind of harks back to an earlier conversation that we had around gun control. So one of the things Clinton does is pass a law that enforces background checks for for gun purchases, and also a ban on assault weapons comes in in 1994. The American people have been waiting a long time for this day. In the last 25 years, half a million Americans have been killed by other Americans. And for 25 years, crime has been a hot political issue used too often to divide us while the system makes excuses for not punishing criminals and doing the job. Instead of being used to unite us to prevent crime, punish criminals, and restore a sense of safety and security to the American people. Now, to get that through, this assault weapons ban, the administration and Democrats basically had to agree to a sunset clause, which meant that the ban would, unless it was explicitly renewed by Congress, it would expire within a decade. So for most, for the 1990s, basically, there is a ban on assault weapons, but then that sunset clause is enacted in 2004 and the ban on assault weapons is lifted. So that, I think, is a really um, significant milestone for the Clinton administration in and of itself. That's really, that's really interesting because, I mean, you, you can, not to go both sides on it, but you can see the logic of that. And especially at this point in the early 1990s, before American politics got so toxic and divisive and the real power of particularly the NRA and various lobbyists became apparent, you can see the sense in putting that sunset clause you know, if you're a very confident 90s liberal type, right? You know, you're thinking, you know, and you know, you would think it's a fairly safe assumption that it's not going to, that is that 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 time isn't going to pass, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I think the kind of assumption was that of of course you would renew a ban on assault weapons, um, but they didn't, and and that's why we see. I think you know, well, that is absolutely why we see this is huge uptick in in mass murder, essentially, in the United States after 2004, which is not to say, of course, that they didn't happen in in between those. And we'll, we'll talk about that, I think, in a, in a later episode. But I think what's really particularly interesting about that is that this ban on assault weapons comes as part of a huge omnibus bill, crime bill, under the Clinton administration, which kind of lumps in um, violent crime, gun crime, with other crimes. So that's kind of another shift, I think, that we've seen since the 1990s, where, where gun control becomes more about a kind of right-wing talking point about 
a right to bear arms rather than associated with Republican crackdowns on violent crime, if that makes sense. Okay, that's yeah, that's really interesting, and it's, I think it's um, it's really it's kind of a fun exercise to sort of imagine yourself into the mentality of a of a nineties Clintonite, right? It is, and yeah. yeah, and actually, yeah, and like you said, sort of tracking those the changes in what guns mean and the political arguments and the constitutional arguments that surround that surround gun crime, right? That's right. And I think it, it kind of reminds us as well when we're so deterministic about whether gun reform can happen because the this ban on assault weapons actually happened kind of in response to some mass shootings. So so it was basically a response to, to mass shootings and saying we, we need to get these assault weapons off the street. So, you know, those changes can happen. I think the 90s shows us that to, to be uncharacteristically positive. Yeah, so there was, you know, it was kind of like America's Port Arthur moment, but one that didn't last. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and I think I should say as well that this assault weapons ban, as I said, is part of this kind of omnibus crime bill, which is another huge um, legacy, I suppose, of the Clinton administration. It's, it's a huge package, this bill, um, which contributes to what many have called a kind of lost generation of people. So this bill kicks off a period of mass incarceration, um, particularly of young African-American men for minor drug offences. So in the 1990s, it's hailed as, you know, Clinton's kind of tough on crime, new Democrat shtick, and, and it's a bipartisan bill. But part of, to go back to 2016 and even today, part of what we're seeing now is a relitigation of that legacy and a recognition of the huge damage that it has done, particularly to minority communities. And and one interesting thing that, that kind of sticks out to me is that the kind of weird processes of American legislation mean that this bill goes through uh, committees first before it's put to a, to a whole congressional vote. And because this is the crime bill, it goes through the Senate Judiciary Committee, the chair, chairman of which in the 1990s is... Um, Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden. Really? <laughs> yes. So, so Joe Biden plays a huge role in, in getting this huge omnibus crime bill through uh, Congress. In fact, in 2016, he called it the 1994 Biden crime bill uh, in Incomplete character of, you know, Biden claiming credit for everything, <laughs> which I, I think he may, you know, beginning, be beginning to regret, as I said, as the, as the kind of legacy of this is re-litigated and he tries to walk that line between appealing to white voters and, and being the kind of tough on crime guy, but also getting out the Obama coalition, which means getting out black voters. So that's going to be a hard line for him to walk, I think. That's... Uh... It's interesting to think about that, like in terms of someone having such a long career and such, you know, and evidently such a compromised career. I'm sure that plenty of people who are listening are aware of the historic sexual assault accusations that have been leveled against Joe Biden and that rightly should be calling his candidacy into question. A long career and one in which you've clearly been everywhere that isn't necessarily, I think, you know, that's always been something that's been played as being in Joe Biden's favour when it comes to the election, but it's just as easily something that can come back to bite you, especially in such, you know, what we're seeing now, which are really fundamentally transforming political circumstances. Like, that's probably one difference between the 1990s and 2020 is that there are clearly things that were permissible and 
strategic and, you know, I, they, they would argue politically necessary in the 1990s that aren't permissible and aren't, and aren't okay now. So, yeah, one respect you made, which we're, we're doing better <laughs> in certain parts of the pop. Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think so. I, I think we're, we are less forgiving and I think probably recognise that some of those compromises, you know, even things like the sunset clause in the, in the ban on assault weapons, those kind of compromises don't yield results. What they do is, I think, kind of delay things and, and delay consequences rather than, than fundamentally change things. But, you know, having said that, the, the Democrats have made a clear choice to go for that kind of, um, I guess, air quotes, steady hand, old hand in, in Joe Biden. And, it, and again, I think that, you know, partly is a, a yearning for the 1990s and, and the Clinton administration. So Bill Clinton said himself in um, 2016 that, and I'm quoting here, there's been one time in 50 years when we all grew together and that's when I had the honour to serve and I would like to see it happen again. So we have this yearning, I think, for, for the kind of bipartisan, the so-called bipartisan politics and consensus of the 1990s, which, as we've talked about before, when you, you spoke about throw, throwback democracies, is kind of a yearning for something that that didn't exist. But in a way that, you know, that the, the I guess the the yearning for that bipartisanship for when kind of all the the old boys in Congress worked together and were all mates, which which Joe Biden has spoken about on on multiple occasions, is exists and and it, it exists and and I think yeah. it needs to and be you know and also that I mean like I've said I've said before on this, on the podcast is that that's it's historical, but it also doesn't it doesn't account for the true costs of that, as in this as in the crime bill that you've talked about, and also in gun control. I think, you know, and I, I said before that it's, inter- it's an interesting exercise to try to think back into the mentality of these people and, you know, the decisions that led them to, you know, in a, within their rationality, make these decisions that would in the end have some disastrous consequences. And, but that's not to say that we should sympathise with them. I think it's a real shame that we've had to learn from, learn lessons from them at such enormous cost. So... Okay, so Emma, can you can you tell me like was this is there something to be celebrated about Bill Clinton's presidency? I, I think there are things absolutely to be celebrated about his presidency. I think you know as much as I um, I guess kind of criticise the sunset clause of the assault weapons ban that that was an, an enormous achievement and and again one that seems you know almost impossible today, but that. Uh, that that sort of fairly simple act would have saved countless thousands of, of lives, I think. Um, so that is really significant. I think he was also hugely important in in be, being the first Democrat to, to kind of sort of win an election and win it outright for, for decades. He was a young, fresh and, and ostensibly progressive face for the 1990s. He was cool and I think inspiring for a lot of progressives who have, I think, struggled since to kind of let go of their affection and um, and support of the, of the Clintons and the Clinton administration in spite of a kind of rethinking, I think, of, of course, the, the Lewinsky scandal, which I haven't talked about today but we will talk about I think in a later episode um even though that that has kind of been discussed to death I think some of his his and and Hillary Clinton's work work on healthcare reform which I haven't talked about um which was ultimately unsuccessful still nevertheless kind of played a role in what has been a very slow walk forwards when it comes to healthcare reform 
in the United States and, and changing the debate, I think, around healthcare, which, you know, we cannot underestimate how difficult it has been to get to a point where healthcare for all is a viable policy platform. Um, that's been decades in the making and the Clintons, I think, play an important role in that. Um, but I also think that, you know, the Clinton administration is, is a big part of our kind of rethinking of the 1990s and the kind of damage that the politics of the 1990s inflicted on us. And I think the Clintons played a big part in that. And, and we'll probably talk about that, I think, in a, in a later instalment of this episode, particularly when we talk about Clinton economics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that from what you said there, I think... When people celebrate the Clintons or, you know, they lament the fact that Hillary didn't become president or they suggest that she should somehow run in and become the nominee in the upcoming US presidential election, part of the historical blindness of that is that they sort of overpersonalize that administration and, you know, and probably partly because Bill Clinton was such a charismatic, such a forceful figure in American politics and when they say that someone, you know, a Bill Clinton figure or Hillary Clinton could come make, come in and sweep the field in an election, it's because they are putting too much emphasis on that individual and not they're kind of ignoring their times and the ways that they were constrained by the times and also constrained by their opposition, which I guess leads me to what we want to talk about in our next instalment of episode two of Barely Getting By, the long 1990s, which is the Republicans and the right and the, the role that they played in a decade when they were technically out of power, but still wielding enormous influence over American politics. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 